welcome to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series features founders, investors, and legal talent that will help you embrace technology and transform your organization for a better future. This series is hosted by Natalie Pierce, the chair of Gunderson Detmer's Labor and Employment Law Practice. Natalie and her guests are committed to helping you develop new playbooks to elevate your game. Hey, this is Natalie for the Future Work Playbook. This season, we are exploring the increasing focus on ESG within the VC landscape and beyond. I'm so pleased to have a conversation with today's guests, two of my esteemed colleagues, Alexa Belenik and Andy Thorpe, who are part of Gunderson Detmer's public companies and capital markets practice. Alexa helps clients with pre-IPO preparations and post-IPO matters, including equity and debt financing and compliance for tech and life sciences clients in various industries. Andy is a corporate attorney specializing in securities regulation, M&A, public offerings, and corporate governance for leaders in various tech and financial sectors and has a background at the SEC. Alexa and Andy will provide their unique perspective from the public company side regarding what companies should be thinking in terms of ESG issues, no matter what the stage they are. Alexa and Andy, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. And I apologize for my dog barking, but I think she got excited when she heard about uh, ESG. (laughs) I love it. Okay, listen, Andy and and your dog, um, I want to start with you because historically speaking, there's been a fundamental shift in how the SEC has approached ESG. You probably saw some interesting dealings and conversations during your tenure there, but it really wasn't until these last few years that there was a big push by SEC Chair Gary Gensler to create more standardization and disclosures by public companies. Why do you think there's was so much resistance early on within the SEC to establish these frameworks? And how has that environment changed since you left, Andy? Well, thank you very much. So I wouldn't necessarily say that I that the SEC was resisting anything. I just think that focus on ESG issues was just not as prevalent. And I'll, I'll give some examples. So I, I think the SEC typically, when it came to dealing with ESG, responded to sort of political stimulus. For example, in the 1970s, when the Superfund legislation was adopted, the SEC added a provision in their MDNA, their management's discussion and analysis requirements for companies to disclose costs related to Superfund cleanup sites. But you know, I, I don't think climate change was on the radar until like the early 2000s or mid 2000s. You know, the SEC, uh, it was, I think, one of the commissioners, Commissioner Elise Walters, sort of spearheaded an effort to get more companies to discuss climate change risks. But the SEC put out an interpretive release to try and get at that disclosure. Now, under Gensler, you're right, this climate change proposal that's on the table requiring companies to measure scope one, scope two, scope three emissions is well beyond anything that anyone could have imagined. And I attribute that, well, it's it's definitely a response to institutional investor 
demand for this information. And I attribute that to the growth in the governance profession. So it used to be much like the institutional investors. They had portfolio managers that made investment decisions. And I would doubt that they considered anything related to you know, climate change and they governance, obviously it grew to a bigger consideration after Sarbanes-Oxley, after like the WorldCom and Enron scandals. But I really don't think that the governance professionals that were at these institutional investors really weighed into investment decisions. I think that they were just sort of a department that companies had, you know, it was good PR. They want to be good corporate citizens. Um, But I think over the last decade or so, this profession really has grown. It's definitely into a movement. And now uh, there are investors that actually take ESG considerations into uh, the investment decisions. I think that's really a a fundamental shift. Um, There's a a great quote that I once heard. Uh, There's an American philosopher, Eric Hoffer. He says, every great cause begins as a movement becomes a a business and eventually degenerates into a racket. I think I won't say I won't go as far to say that uh, the governance profession is now a racket, but it's (laughs) definitely there are a ton of resources, both on the institutional investor side and now at the public company side. There's consultants, there's DEI professionals, uh, just a lot of resources are being focused on that. So this is really an area that the governance profession can look to to change behavior. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'll note is the SEC is a disclosure agency. They really can't mandate certain behavior the way another Department of Labor can say, here are the standards for safe labor practices. All the SEC can do is require disclosure. So the only way that they can get behavior is to cut what I call... <laughs> behavior through disclosure, which is basically Mm -hmm. they require disclosure of their practices and no company wants to say, yeah, we don't care about the environment or we do nothing about, you know, diversity. So basically they then have to, they, you know, they see what their peers are doing and they then have to invest so that they can start disclosing. Yes, we do have a net carbon policy. We do have uh, active programs with, uh, with, diversity, equity, inclusion. So honestly, it it used to never be the purview of the SEC to talk about non-financial performance. But now you look at, you know, there's things the SEC requires, such as conflicts, minerals reports, mine safety disclosure, all of these things that really deal with like ESG uh, that, that typically just have not been something for the first 50 years or first 70 years of the SEC were like on the table as far as what was necessary for an informed investment decision. That's great background, Andy. And it definitely sounds like we're we're seeing this combo of rise of the governance professionals and almost like public shaming in a way by forcing these or by having, putting the pressures on these types of disclosures that we hadn't historically seen. And, you know, I think many of our listeners will be familiar with Sarbanes-Oxley and and Dodd-Frank. Andy, sticking with you for a minute, how 
do you compare these new ESG proposals uh, to that of Sarbanes-Oxley or Dodd-Frank in terms of reporting and other protections? Well, if we're talking specifically about the SEC's climate change proposal, well, there's two considerations. So Sarbanes-Oxley and Dodd-Frank were really reactions to the headlines of the day. So uh, Sarbanes-Oxley was a specific reaction to Enron, WorldCom, Tyco, and Dodd-Frank was a specific reaction to Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers. And so the actual provisions of those laws specifically address everything that went wrong in, in the headlines. For instance, right. for Sarbanes-Oxley, if you guys remember uh, WorldCom, the executives and the directors took loans and those loans weren't disclosed from the company. Sarbanes-Oxley prohibited loans. Enron had off-balance sheet transactions. Sarbanes-Oxley required rules requiring disclosure of off-balance sheet transactions. The current agenda is not coming from like giant scandals. It really is coming from the investor community. And as I said, the governance professional community. And then there's also the trend. I mean, even without SEC rulemaking, a lot of companies are adopting these rules just as good practices, as best practices. There already are a, a number of companies. Typically, they tend to be the largest companies and the you know the the most prominent companies, but they already have massive programs in place. They do corporate social responsibility reports. So, I mean, there's already sort of preemptive, I wouldn't say compliance, but it's just, hey, these companies want to be good corporate citizens. Mm -hmm. And they, and yeah, they are responding to shareholder pressure. The real question that you're asking is costs that are being imposed on public companies. And I think that this carbon, uh, the climate change proposal is right up there as far as some of the, the most the most costly Sarbanes-Oxley rules, which were the internal control over financial reporting. And you can see from that, I mean, a whole industry developed with consultants, with software, sure. with the accounting firms, the whole new line of business. And so I think that climate change is going to be on par with that. You know, it really is going to be a significant change. I always view kind of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act or just the securities laws in general as kind of like a building code. That if, hey, you're going to allow public the public to come into your building, i.e. you're going to allow them to invest in your company, you need to have certain minimum safety structures. So I always say, when you go public, you are now in the business of being a public company, meaning you need to have a department or professionals in charge of compliance with all of those building codes, all of those securities laws. And this is going to require an entirely different structure of professionals, of consultants, of auditors, of software solutions to enable companies to comply with it. So it's definitely going to increase the cost and kind of the the structure of what a public company needs to look like. Yeah, no doubt about that. And again, thank you for setting this stage for us, Andy. And now I think I want to redirect us to some important questions for our listeners about why now is the time not just for public companies, but for uh, any size companies who are in the venture capital ecosystem to 
look at how to implement ESG practices and frameworks. And for that, Alexa, I want to turn to you and ask if you can talk to us about what's going on in today's market. Uh, Why is there so much focus on ESG and what expectations does that put on companies? So teeing off what Andy was saying, what's interesting for us in the SEC world, the focus is really on that new climate change rule that discussed ESG, or as we'll get into, ESG is much broader than climate change. We're used to seeing a scandal being the reason that regulation as broad as this gets introduced. And here, we don't have that fact. As Andy mentioned, the SEC is responding to institutional investor focus, but why are the investors focusing on it? And I think to answer that question, one place you have to start is seeing the kind of constellation of people, regulators, institutions out there that are interested in ESG, just kind of see the breadth of it, and then back into why so many different people are looking at companies through this lens. Yeah. So in terms of the breadth of players, you know, obviously you've got the regulators, and that's part of the reason you're talking to us, right? You know, the SEC is focused on it, NASDAQ put in place new board diversity disclosure rules, some state governments uh, were also really involved in some of the board diversity requirements. Those regulators are responding to, I'd say, a combination of investors, but also the public. So on the investor side, uh, there's a number of different actors. I mean, one of them is institutional investors, but we've also seen this be a focus for underwriters who are looking at taking companies public. So uh, some underwriters have uh, policies where they won't take a public a company public unless they have a certain level of diversity on their board. Right. Shareholder activists. So this has been an interesting one. Not you know the rise of the ESG focused activists. I think the famous example here was engine number one changing policies at Exxon based on not actually a, a massive sort of investment portfolio. So they were not a really large activist fund by dollar value were able to change uh, ExxonMobil. So that's kind of a new trend. And, uh, and also there are people who are impact investors. So people who do make investments where part of the thesis is you tie the goals that the company is trying to achieve not only to a financial outcome, but also an ESG outcome. So uh, the idea here being that uh, not only do you look for results from the company on a financial basis, but you tie the investment to some ESG metric. Um, I think that also is something that's very new. So there's kind of, there's a constellation of investors, not just institutional investors looking at this topic. And then I think you can't really talk about it without also describing the public mm-hmm. because not all ESG initiatives are just in response to investors. Uh, a lot of it's in response to employees. So in situations, we have this a lot in the Bay Area where there can be real competition for employees or certain types of employees. Uh, one of the ways that competition plays out is recruiting people who feel mission aligned with the company. Mm-hmm. And we've seen a flavor of this in the Valley for a long time, that people want to be at companies that feel innovative, cutting edge, you know, the kind of place that when you tell your friends and family, oh, I'm, I'm working at this place, or, you know, oh, it's in stealth mode, but this is what we're working on, you get that mm-hmm. buzz and um, yeah. you know, reputational respect. And I think it's a flavor of that that has shifted where not only is it, hey, the, the tech, the product, 
the service I'm working on is bleeding edge, creative, but the company itself embodies some values that I believe in. And that can be all kinds of things. It can be diversity and inclusion and bringing in a representative talent base. It can be sustainability. It can be privacy and cybersecurity. We've seen that, you know, that and the public can also be customers, right? So it can be, I'm choosing to partner with this company. I'm choosing to buy its product because I think that they have values that are aligned with mine about how we protect data. Employees have that. Customers have that. Um, a lot of the ESG stuff that you'll see is actually customer facing. You know, it's you're going to buy a product and you like the fact that the packaging is all designed with sustainability in mind. And PR, just general PR, right? So, you know, members of the public who maybe aren't directly an employee or a customer, but um, who enhances your brand awareness to have these elements of your company profile. So, you know, I'd start by saying to understand what's happening in the market, you have to think about all those three groups. If there's regulators, investors, and the public, they all are looking at slightly different things. And when you're trying to peel back why a company is choosing to say something about its ESG, usually it's going to make more sense if you can figure out who it is they're talking to, because they're not all talking to the same people. And in terms of, so, so why are investors, regulators, the public focused on this now? I think it's probably, I would say one of them is, is there's been the, there have been these moments of public visibility. I and mean, we can all think of a couple of these. It can be the Me Too movement. It can be the George Floyd protests and Black Lives Matter. It can be large hacking incidents. So people, you know, I think we all remember when you suddenly got a notice that your credit score information had been hacked and lost by some of the big credit rating agencies. And that, that was really visible to a lot of people. Um, it can be COVID and workforce safety mm-hmm. uh, and how people are you know, suddenly focusing on, well, how are you taking care of your workforce in that environment? So there's been, in relatively recent times, a number of different public visibility moments. I think it's the rise of the mission-aligned consumer and employees, as described a little bit, that it's not just that you like the tech, the product, the service, but you also kind of like the company and you choose, you, you are associating yourself with the brand of the company in a slightly different way than we've seen in the past. And the last one is the rise of the ESG investing portfolio. So when you think, again, where are the changes in behavior from BlackRock, State Street, institutional investors coming from? It's still not, I would say, as a percentage of the market, a huge percentage of overall assets under management, but it's a growth area. So perhaps part of the reason it skews our perspective is not because, and certainly in the retail world, this is the case. It's not the case that all retail investors are suddenly clamoring to move their uh, investing into ESG portfolios. But if you're looking for an area of growth, there tends to be year-over-year growth in the size of assets under management that are chasing an ESG thesis. So and I think the last thing that you have to mention here is, again, balance. There are counter pressures. So not everything is pointing in the direction of more SG, ESG disclosure and more linking, of, in particular, of investing with ESG. There's been a lot of news about state attorneys general, state legislatures, and congressional hearings putting a lot of pressure on, in particular, the BlackRock's vanguard state streets of the world questioning whether there's really an investing thesis to any of this. 
And, uh, you know, recently Vanguard backed out of the net zero asset manager initiative because of that pressure. You know, some of the commentary then there has again been that Vanguard has a lot of retail investors and that's not necessarily what retail thinks is important. And I think the counter pressures tend to have two flavors to them. One of them is what Andy was describing. This is just greenwashing, right? It's just kind of a racket. There's nothing really here. It is, I heard someone once say ESG stands for everything that sounds good. And there's no backbone to this. It is just sort of PR wrapping around the same product and the same people and the same companies. And so that when you think of the costs of some of the climate change initiative rulemaking that SEC is doing, it really feels ridiculous if you think that all you're achieving is greenwashing. So that's one flavor of the criticism. And I think the other flavor is that it's not related to the capital markets. You may believe that there is a moral reason to do some of the ESG initiatives that people focus on. In the same way, there are lots of other kinds of things that we legislate that have a moral reason. You know, Andy brought up labor uh, regulation tends to be a good way to, to force a change in behavior. Child labor laws may as much have a moral reason as an economic reason. And you can believe in those moral reasons or not, but it doesn't feel compelling that that has anything to do with the capital markets. And some people are better at making the connection to the capital markets argument than others. You know, there's been studies about things like having more women on boards improves the outcome of companies, that companies perform better when they have women on the board because uh, you get better decision making, uh, you get more diverse perspectives. I think another place people have made really interesting arguments is about things like the valuing of future assets like oil and gas reserves, right? And that when you look at the value of some large public companies in the oil and gas space, a lot of it is based on the assumptions about the future value of things like those reserves in a world where more and more companies are adopting net uh, carbon zero uh, goals. What is the value? And if we can start fixing that now, does it help us avoid a market crash where we go from we drop to a revaluing to zero very rapidly versus starting to build in better assumptions about the future values of things like revenues and assets now? So you have where you fall on the value of these movements really depends on what you believe they are trying to achieve among those various different goals. Alexi, you hit on a lot there. And I think there is some still some controversy uh, around the value of ESG initiatives. But I, I think that the research is pointing in the direction of showing how it, it leads to better outcomes uh, for companies. I think that at the end of the day, it will be some of these public pressures. And perhaps more importantly, I think it ever since people got devices, you know, the iPhone came out, I guess, in 2007. And so we're, we started seeing so much build of social media, you know, one thing you mentioned was about employees and we are seeing a lot of push in the ESG space when it comes to looking at human capital management and seeing that from a recruiting standpoint, employees are very aware of what the companies they work for stand for. And so I think from a recruiting standpoint, even if there aren't those investment pressures, we'll continue to see 
movement in that regards to really embracing more of these initiatives. And I, I want to stick with you, Alexa, so we can talk a little bit about ESG frameworks for companies who are interested in adopting ESG frameworks. Is, is it as simple as just establishing policies on these issues? How would a company go uh, building their framework? As you probably guessed, again, from Andy's description of the cost to disclose against what the SEC is looking at asking people to adopt. And what the SEC is doing, they are looking to work in harmony with existing frameworks. So the SEC is not trying to create an entirely new framework for climate disclosure. Um, there's, As you mentioned, there's a number of frameworks out there. And so the goal really of all the frameworks is comparability. And so that the SEC is looking to adopt a framework that already exists. But there's a huge cost associated with that. And the reason is that the frameworks, it really is about a combination of qualitative and quantitative disclosure. And the work stream to disclose against one of these is meaningful. You know, I talked to a GC who does a standalone state sustainability report right now. It's a public company. They have a standalone sustainability report that you can go onto their website and download it. And it uses the kind of major reporting frameworks. And she said that it was like doing another 10K. You know, if you think of it in terms of aggregating the information, having it looked at by all the different uh, functions within a company that owned pieces of the report, confirming the quality of the information and accuracy that was disclosed therein. So the way it looks right now for someone adopting the framework, and again, the, the big ones out there. So there's TCFD, which stands for it's the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. That's one. Mm -hmm. SASB, that is the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. Not a coincidence that it sounds a lot like FASB, <laughs> are very much you know designed with that in mind. And then GRI, which tends to be more commonly used um, in Europe, but that is the Global Reporting Initiative. And what these do, if you looked at one of them, they would have this sort of long listing of different categories of ESG disclosure and information calls. Um, they all tend to use a, a kind of materiality standard. So you have to think about what's material and relatable for your company versus others. And then it's a combination of qualitative and quantitative reporting. What's interesting, someone was saying that right now, 60% of the largest public companies already report against TCFD, which is what Andy was kind of describing too. There's a lot of big public companies that do this, but it really, the life cycle of the company, even in public company world, tends to correlate to the disclosures that people do. So the larger you are, the more likely that you are going to take on voluntarily putting together one of these sustainability reports, disclosing against one of these standards. As you kind mm -hmm. of go down the market capitalization sort of size, people will do something. So there's a lot of things you can do short of a full-blown sustainability report against a disclosure standard. You can do, you know, you have disclosure in your proxy uh, statement about, uh, it can be your sustainability, diversity, or board diversity. A lot of people might have a standalone part of their website that talks about it. You might have things that are built in your customer employee-facing materials that aren't, you know, disclosure against a whole sustainability reporting system. But talk to what your ESG goals and what your sort of the way that you project yourself to employees and customers looks like. So, and again, I, I think where the where the frameworks came from, and even the reason that the SEC, for example, is looking to adopt an existing framework, 
the big complaint is comparability, that there's a lot of cherry picking of what people do or don't disclose. It's really hard to compare against people and the frameworks try to address that. But even in the public company world, I wouldn't want anyone to walk away and say, oh, everyone's doing sustainability reports against frameworks. That's really not the case. And it's still very much case-by-case basis if there's a reason. Again, looking at the three categories, maybe it's a regulator, maybe it's investors, maybe it's sort of public employee customers. There's a reason that a company thinks it is worth taking on the time and cost to do one of these reports. They'll do it. It's really not universal at this point. Yeah. Well, Alexa, can you share any examples of investors that are getting pressure to incorporate ESG into their portfolios and what that pressure maybe looks like, where it's coming from? Yeah. So again, I think it's helpful to start by zooming back and saying, why would an investor consider ESG? Because similar to companies where what you see companies doing really depends on the audience they're talking to. Mm-hmm. In the world of investors, it, that is not dissimilar. So for investors who are incorporating some element of ESG into their evaluation of companies and how they build their portfolios, the reasons tend to be either either it's to create value. So kind of like you mentioned, there is a perception that, you know, and in some cases, there have been some studies around this as well, that companies and funds that score high on ESG metrics, they have lower costs of capital, and higher returns on investment. So there's sort of the economic value-based thesis can be one reason. Um, Another is to meet market demand. So, and this has been very much, if you think about where it's coming from for the Black Rocks and state streets of the world, that there's a market demand for a sustainability product. And so then you have to build a thesis around that of how you tell someone uh, that you are actually monitoring, that you're investing according to a sustainability thesis. Another interesting one just to throw out there, maybe less common to U.S.-based funds, but in some countries, there are uh, required disclosures uh, about ESG for asset managers. So for some investors, that's where it comes from, their own regulatory environment. Last one is not unlike what happens to companies. Investors find that it can be important to attracting talent and that younger employees want to work for funds that have a consideration of social good. So similar to what we see in the company space, that can happen in the investment space. And then, you know, what that looks like really takes a lot of different forms. So I think on the, you know, a very one far on one end of the spectrum can be what people call kind of impact investing, where you're investing with an intent to generate an environmental or social benefit. And so then the investor is backing a company that has some outcome, like, uh, you know, improving health could be an example of that thesis. And then you're tracking that outcome over time. Mm -hmm. So then the reporting you're asking the company to give you is not just the reporting most investors are accustomed to, you know, financial reporting, but also reporting on an outcome. So that's kind of one far end of the spectrum. But there's a lot of things short of that that investors can do. So like a couple, you know, an example could be a negative screen. Maybe you're screening out companies in a certain industry from consideration. So sometimes we think of oil and gas, but it could be tobacco. If you're screening out mm-hmm. tobacco because that's not a lot of emission, you know, or you have a minimum standard that you screen for. So you only consider companies with certain minimum ESG scores. And again, ESG is broad. So 
maybe what you're thinking about here is privacy or cybersecurity that you are doing a sort of, you have a, a procedure in place where you do a minimum screen to say, look, we expect everyone destined to have certain safeguards around privacy and cybersecurity. And it's something we actively look at in addition to um, sort of the financial outcomes of the investment. So I, I think like what you see on the company side, there is a real mixture of approaches and then also a real mixture of motivation. And that changes what uh, ESG-aligned investing looks like. If I might just weigh in, I, one yeah. thing I, I found really interesting is I was, a while back, I was attending a, a conference and the head of governance for CalSTRS said something very telling to me. She said, when a company says, hey, if you don't like our practices, don't invest in our company. Her response is, you know, we have such a big fund and we have so many diversification requirements. We don't have an option. Like we are long-term holders. The answer that you know, we can't just sell off our position. So that's where the effort comes from. Okay, we can't just pick and choose what companies we want to invest in. We kind of, once we invest in a company, we're in it for the long term. So we have to engage with those companies to try and change behaviors. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, I just, I always found that interesting is walking away is not an option. Yeah. And that's, I think, why we are seeing this increase in shareholder activism. Just if we can't leave you, that's a great point, Andy. If we can't leave you, we're going to try and change you. So those were those were really good examples. And I am curious if you can just maybe each share with our listeners, what are some material initiatives that you've seen work with your clients? Yeah. So I think in in the space that we are in. So if you're thinking about material ESG initiatives. Yeah. 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 And I and I think if you're what those are always changes by industry. And I think in tech like sciences, the things that you're going to see people focus on are going to be diversity, equity, and inclusion, and talent, um, cyber and privacy. I think for companies that have a physical product, vendor and supply chain policies matter. And Mm -hmm. in terms of just tangibly, okay, so you identify with material. That's always the first step is what is actually material to us? Who's the audience we're speaking to? and What do they care about? So let's say, for example, it is um, vendor supply chain. So how do you then actually operationalize that? We always think of that in in terms of three things in the public company world, but I think those three things matter in the private company world as well, which is, you know, you have the policy. So you start with, uh, you know, our vendor supply chain is we don't use conflict mineral, expect fair labor practices from our, our vendors, or we expect them to have, you know, strong cybersecurity and privacy controls. Uh, so you have a policy, but the next piece of that is always you need implementation. So it's not helpful to have a policy on paper that then no one ever references. And and what implementation usually looks like, it's a combination of having some sort of, you might have certification around it. It could be third-party certification. It could be that you have a routine of training around it and the people certifying they've attended the training. So they're aware it's you have a policy of, you document that you send the policy to your vendors, you do some sort of diligence process, a conversation with them to make sure that they agree to it and that it is accurate in terms of how they're currently operating. And then you revisit that annually. 
I think the other thing that we often think about is depending on the materiality of it, that you have some upward reporting. So there's a, a board report that happens once a quarter. You know, the board looks into cybersecurity and then this becomes part of the thing that you report to the board on. Or uh, sometimes you need to hire someone. You need to hire someone who focuses on vendor supply chain. So your policy, you have some sort of implementation that has a repeat element to it. And the third one, which you think it's public companies, but it's not just public companies, is disclosure. Um, I know someone who uh, invests, just has an ESG investing uh, portfolio, uh, who's an asset manager, and she once said, it doesn't matter if you're doing really good things and if you have really good policies, if nobody knows about it, because I can only give you credit for it if I know it exists. Mm -hmm. And for public companies, sure, disclosure can be your 10K, your proxy, that kind of thing. But for private companies, you want to think about how you are also making the the audience aware that you're actually doing this. So maybe it's a part of your website where you talk about, you know, about us and you talk about um, your your policies and programs around cybersecurity or privacy. Maybe it is the board. Maybe that's who you're reporting to so that the board members who are the representatives of your shareholders are aware that the company is doing this on a repeat basis. Maybe you're building it into your investor decks. Maybe it's part of RFPs that you have to answer to. But you want to think about if you're doing all this work, who's your audience and are they actually getting that disclosure from you? Another important thing to keep in mind, I think that what holds some companies back is this notion that you have to have this fully developed, you know, full-fledged ESG framework plan, et cetera. But I think you can just start small and uh, and have it, and I think sometimes starting too big, that's where it you know you might run into this. Everything sounds good, uh, whereas it's not it's not something that's really being implemented. Um, right. And so having a committee and and all these things that you talk about in in that framework about just thinking about who your audience is, reporting up, bringing in uh, stakeholders into that discussion and letting it be something that evolves over time. Yeah. And frankly, if you start small, the reality is you're probably going to pick the right thing because if you're bothering to start, you're going to pick what's material and what actually matters and where there's actually an audience who will be listening, which is always the right place to start. And even if you build out more over time and sort of move into other aspects of ESG, there's no downside to starting with the core of what matters to you. And that can be a small step, but it will get you to focus on the right piece of that ESG from the beginning. Exactly. My view is there's a distinction between just having all the policies as window dressing, but not actually implementing them, not actually complying with them, not having any oversight, not having any you know, high level board uh, reporting and involvement. So it's it's much better to actually, as we said, start small, but be meaningful rather than, you know, have all these great documents written, but not actually have any effort or attention paid paid to the initiatives. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Andy and Alexa. Very much enjoyed the discussion. And I guess I want to invite you if you want to make any closeout remarks to our listeners before we we end our episode. Sure. On my end, just waiting and anticipating for the SEC climate change rule to be adopted. 
you know, I'm still not a hundred percent certain that it that it ever will be adopted or that it will be adopted as quickly as the SEC is saying that they're going to adopt it. Recall back to Sarbanes-Oxley when we initiated the internal control over financial reporting. That was 2002. Yeah. Uh, And uh, it's now 2023 and companies still don't have to comply with it. I mean, there were all kinds of compliance deferrals. There were, you know, the SEC then said, okay, we won't require uh, smaller reporting companies to do a piece of it. There's going to be a transition period. And I think that the, if the climate change rules do get adopted, I, I think the SEC, or I hope that they will revisit and have a significant compliance phase in and also maybe look at, okay, for newly public companies, what are the requirements versus for a more mature company or a larger market cap company versus a a newly public company with a smaller market cap, just because the reality of the situation is it's hard enough to be a public company. And now having additional significant reporting obligations on top of that is, uh, I fear, is just not going to result in the real change in culture and behavior that the SEC is looking for. So that's my two cents on that. Thank you, Andy. Alexa? So I would say for anybody watching what's happening in the public markets right now, but who doesn't have to participate in it, so you know, private companies, private investors, I would look at what public companies are doing, and in particular, peers and competitors who are public companies, as interesting issue spotters to help think about what might be material to me, who is my audience, what are some of the policies or practices out there that are choices. and. I think that's relevant just to begin the question of what of the many things within ESG might be meaningful for me to spend some time on. But I agree with Andy, there's so much change happening and a lot of regulatory uncertainty. I don't think it's obvious what's going to be the thing you're going to disclose against by the time that you are public. So that's the lens I would look at it through. Excellent. Excellent. Alexa and Andy, thank you again. and. Listeners, we invite you to follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify for the rest of our season, where we will speak with investors, company leaders, and other stakeholders to continue exploring the important topic of ESG. Thank you for joining us. You've just listened to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series is brought to you by Gunderson Detmer the world's number one law firm representing venture capital funds and high growth companies. Join Natalie Pierce on our next episode as she and her guests help prepare your organization for the future. Please subscribe to the Future Work Playbook.